0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 90. Very excited uh, to talk to my guest this week, someone I've been meaning to get on the show for quite a long time, and so I am uh, i can hardly contain my excitement as we approach my <laughs> conversation with her. But before we do that, let me do my usual song and dance for Counterpunch as I try to guilt trip you into getting a subscription to the magazine. I mean, Prince a Dinosaur, print is dead. Who prints magazines? Well, Counterpunch still does. And uh, I happen to think it's an excellent magazine. I was just thumbing through it on the train uh, this morning into work and on my way back because I, I didn't want to bring my backpack. So that worked out well for me. Counterpunch is great to keep by your bed by your uh, birdcage, by your toilet, really anywhere that's most convenient for you. Um, but I really do think that supporting print publications in general, and Counterpunch specifically, is very important, particularly in these times. I really do feel that Counterpunch is one of the very few places that really is a an outpost for truth-telling, an outpost for critical analysis. And so I feel privileged and honored to be working with Counterpunch, and hopefully uh, you can become a contributor to this project as well. Also, positive reviews for this show are always greatly appreciated. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. I know there's a bunch of other platforms where people find podcasts. Anywhere you want to give us a positive review, spread it word of mouth. Greatly appreciated. I've seen this show growing pretty significantly, and that's uh, incredibly gratifying. So thank you guys for that as well. Okay, uh, let me turn to my guest this week. Um, I... Probably doesn't need a whole lot of introduction, well known to a lot of people listening, but um, I'm still very happy to be able to introduce Ellen Brown. Uh, Ellen Brown is an author, uh, an advocate, an activist, a crusader on a number of very important issues, including issues related to the uh, finance capital and to the economy. And so, Ellen Brown, I want to welcome you to Counterpunch Radio and thank you for all of your contributions. Welcome, Ellen.
1: Uh, Thanks, Eric. Great to be talking to you. So um, I want to
0: begin with a very general question, and it might be overly simplistic, but I think it's a good entry point for a lot of people, whether they are or aren't familiar with your work. So the obvious question to start, Ellen, tell us what public banking is.
1: Public banking is, our public banks are banks that are owned by the government, not by private, they're not private corporations, they're public corporations. Um, globally, in the I think in the 1980s, they were 50% of banks were publicly owned, and then it went down from there with the push for privatization. So today, something like 22% or so globally are publicly owned, but there's still quite a few banks. So places like China, you know, they at one time obviously owned all their banks, just the government did, and now I think. I'm not sure what the last I looked it was like 80%. So here's the advantage: if you if you own the bank, like China owns its banks, uh, banks we now know actually they don't lend their deposits; they actually create deposits when they make loans, as the Bank of England has confirmed, and so did um, the um, the German central bank, uh, uh, the Bundesbank. Uh, also confirmed recently, like two months ago, in a report that that it's that it's a myth that banks lend their deposits. They actually they are not just intermediaries taking in money and lending it out again. That they actually create deposits, and that's where most of our money comes from. So, say that the Chinese want the Chinese government wants to build 12,000 miles of high-speed rail, which is what they've done in the last decade. Where do they get the money? They just Write a check on their central bank, they own the central bank um, they there's no interest required, or if they do pay interest, then they get it back because they own the bank and then of course the the railroad is very very um lucrative, and it easily pays back the the cost of building the things, so that is actually the natural way to. You pay for government is that the government spends first, and then it gets it back in taxes or fees or whatever uh, to balance up the books. But instead, we have this notion that government is supposed to have the money before it spends it, and that if it goes into debt, that that's a horrible thing, and then then we have to, you know, pay huge amounts of interest. But you don't need to pay any interest if you borrowed it from your own bank. If, if our Federal Reserve actually were a publicly owned bank and returned all its, well, it, it, I mean, it does return its profits to the government after deducting its costs. But the thing is, the government doesn't borrow from the Fed; it borrows on the private market, and so do most. That's the way most governments operate ever since the 1970s.
0: Can you tell us? But a- what
1: we're really talking about is state-owned banks city-owned banks, county-owned banks, because we have a lot more control over that, and uh, we have one publicly-owned bank in the U.S., and that's the Bank of North Dakota, and it's a brilliant model. So go
0: ahead. Yeah, so I will definitely get to the North Dakota example in a little bit. But I want to just ask you, um, I think you were kind of alluding to it, but I want to flesh it out a little bit further. Talk about a little bit about how and why a public bank really offers a lot more, let's call it flexibility when it comes to investing in socially necessary projects versus, say, the kind of banking system, a private banking system as we have today.
1: Well, the the private banking system wants to, I mean, their model is to make profits for their shareholders. So if it's not profitable, of course, we don't want our public bank to lose money either, but um, they, they don't. Well, the Bank of North Korea doesn't lose money. It's extremely profitable. There was an article in the fall of 2014 in the Wall Street Journal that said it was actually more profitable than J.P. Morgan Chase. Um but anyway, if you own the bank, then you can determine where the money goes, who gets the loans, and the interest rate on the loans. And because the model is so efficient, which I can go into that, um, your costs are very low, and therefore you can you can undercut any other bank. You know, you can lend for like 2% less than any other bank and still turn a profit because you just hardly have any costs at all.
0: Yeah. Now, now, talk a little bit about that because some of those some of those costs that are associated with the private banking system that you don't have with the public bank. Like, what are some examples of that? What is a public bank able to do or not do uh, as compared to a private bank?
1: Well, there are different models, but let's assume we set up our state-owned bank, like the Bank of North Dakota. By law, all of the state's revenues are deposited in the bank. So it has a built-in deposit base. It doesn't have to advertise for depositors. It doesn't have to advertise for borrowers. It's more like a banker's bank where it partners with the local banks. So the local bank is like the front office, which has all the tellers and deals with the customers and arranges the loans and checks uh, Creditworthiness and so forth, all the things that banks do, and then the Bank of North Dakota comes in, and if they like the loan, then they they can um, participate in it, so they allow the bank the the private bank to make make much larger loans than it would than it would otherwise they guarantee the loans they um they allow the bank to use public deposits because they guarantee the deposits, rather, or they do letters of credit for the deposits, rather than the banks having to post collateral as they do, for example, in California. So that's one thing. They don't they don't advertise. They they have a built-in deposit base. Um, they don't have to have like offices. They don't have branches all over the place, like like. Whatever Bank of America or something they've they used to only have one branch in the capital city they now have two branches, but still it's they're not really catering to private depositors. they have a few like two or three percent of their deposits are private, and that's just because they thought well, we're a public bank, <laughs> we should be available, but they don't make it easy to be to be a you know a customer I mean you almost have to live right next to the branch.
0: Now one of the things about the uh the public bank issue that I find particularly interesting is understanding this model um uh, you know, against the backdrop, as it were, of uh, Donald Trump's infrastructure plan, because I think it's a good example of where a public bank really could uh, come in. Because Trump's uh, infrastructure plan, although it's been much touted and many people have sort of uh, gone along with it, I think that there's good analysis out there that points to uh, glaring holes in this in this plan, which is essentially, in many ways, a boon to the to the to the large private developers and a boondoggle. In in many ways, for uh, Americans in general. So can you talk a little bit about the the ability that a public bank offers to do things like large-scale infrastructure projects that under our current model are really almost guaranteed to enrich the rich and not address the fundamental problems?
1: Well, it's, again, a question of... The investors want a good return. Right now, um, private equity is getting a return of 8 to 18%. So let's say an average of 12% return they want, which they're going to get it. It's true. They're not going to get it from the the local government. I mean, the local government has the benefit of getting this off their books, but they're going to get that money from us. They're going to impose user fees and, you know, all the things that they do. To, like um, tolls and so forth that they do with um, infrastructure, like parking, parking meter tolls that are out, outrageously high, um, and they do things like any cost overruns the government has to bear, even if the the uh, private infrastructure company, whatever the builder, goes bankrupt, it's the the government still gets stuck with the liabilities. So basically, we the people get the liabilities, and the private investors get the profits, and they're not interested in in investing in those things that we really particularly need, like um, whatever, road repair, sewer repair, that sort of thing that uh, is not profitable but, but much needed.
0: Yeah, and 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 again, I mean, one of the things that I think is is really critical in in sort of examining this is in understanding what uh, public bank uh, could do or could not do. So, for instance, one of the real profit generating mechanisms for the private banks is this sort of risky investments, derivatives, mortgage backed securities, all of the different you know uh, uh, you know exotic instruments that Wall Street banks use. And with a public bank, you could literally legislate the terms along which the bank uh, will lend and how the bank will use the money and so forth. So there is not only oversight, but sort of a direct control over the actions and investments of the bank.
1: Yeah, precisely. And uh, the public bank, well, the Bank of North Dakota is doing 2% infrastructure loans for for their local communities. So normally infrastructure loans are 4 to 6%. So th- just because their model is so much more efficient, they're able to make much cheaper loans, and then that means that the, that the people, um, you know, their costs are much lower.
0: Now, I'm curious a little bit about the sort of the growth of this movement that you are uh, in many ways, you know, one of the founders of and, and and leaders of because, you know, I remember hearing about this a number of years ago. I don't know, maybe 2011, 2012, something like that. And, uh, you know, while it was talked about to some degree in some progressive circles, it was in many ways under the radar. And I think over the course of the last couple of years and especially uh, in the last, you know, two, I would say Uh, This idea has gained a lot of traction and it's, I don't know if we could say it's gone mainstream, but it's certainly much more uh, in the public, you know, in the realm of public debate. So can you talk a little bit about how the movement for public banking has uh, developed over these last few years and what you've seen as far as this idea gaining traction?
1: Yeah, well, we've definitely gained quite a bit of traction. We have like 50 different cities, counties, et cetera, where we have groups that are Pushing, pushing the idea. And at the Public Banking Institute, which I founded or co-founded, but uh, um, I'm not chairman at the moment. But anyway, um, we have uh, monthly conference calls or t- with the coordinators and with people who are interested, and we give advice on how they can approach their legislators, and we hear how everybody's doing and what problems they're facing. So everybody shares their experience so it really is a movement in that sense where you you sh- share experience with other people. Uh, we have a conference. We've done a number of conferences. We have one coming up in September in New Jersey. It's in Princeton, New Jersey. The reason um, New Jersey was picked is that the Bill Murphy, who is running for governor of New Jersey as a Democrat, uh, I mean, he is the nominee as a Democrat, and he's expected to win. He plans to... Um, to fund his platform with a with a state-owned bank and he he's said that a number of times and he's still saying it so i presume he's going to stick to it he was a goldman sachs banker which is those are the people that get it you know it's the bankers who who their eyes light up and they say oh but you know i could make that bank profitable overnight because they understand how banking works they understand that banks use leverage and that we're just throwing away that benefit by giving, it, giving our money to Wall Street, we give it to Wall Street and they pay us a pittance and our deposits. And then we borrow from Wall Street at quite high fees, plus all the other onerous things they do, like credit default swaps that we wind up on the wrong end of and so forth.
0: Yeah, and and of course now because of the the way that the economy has sort of uh been buttressed this last uh ten years or so since two thousand seven, two thousand eight, now you have a situation where Wall Street and the big banks almost can't even exist if it's not uh under the sort of protection and under the auspices of quantitative easing, free money, free credit, you know, some things along those lines. It's sort of these sort of policies that are designed by banks for Banks in order to prop them up.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, the, I first started writing about this when I knew that North Dakota was the only state that owned its own bank. But every but the person that told me that another bank money reformer. I'd re, I wrote a book called Web of Debt that was published in 2007, and then I you know went to banking conferences and so forth and. Um, so another money reformer told me that they had a st- – I said, Is, are there any uh, states that have state on banks? And he said, yeah, well, there's one. There's North Dakota. He said, but it's just an ordinary bank. He was looking for something else. He wanted a bank that would actually issue currency. Um, but I was paying attention. And w- th- when after we had the crisis of 2008, first there were four banks that were – in, or in Sorry, four states that were in the black And then there were three I mean, they were going down fast And then there were two And then there was one The only state that totally escaped the credit crisis And was still sporting a surplus uh, Was North Dakota So I suspected it had something to do with their state-owned bank And I started writing about it but I think that, of course the bank their bank was set up in nineteen nineteen so it's been around for hundred years, and most people were totally unaware of it and I wouldn't have been aware of it, but for that fortuitous <laughs> circumstance right. um, so I think they intentionally kept a low profile, and that's how they managed to do it. I know in Guernsey, for example they they actually issue money in you know, the government just issues money for infrastructure. But Bill Still, who is another money reformer, went to inter- he went there to to uh, Guernsey and tried to interview somebody, and they wouldn't talk to him about it. So, you know, it's one of those things that you just—if you don't make it public, you can you can do it a lot longer. If you buck the system and do do something in a more innovative way, so I don't think anybody even knew that it, that that was an option. In the U.S., we had no public banks except that. I mean, we've got in California, we've got the infrastructure bank, or there are a number of infrastructure banks in the country, but they're not really banks. They're they're revolving funds. They're not really depository banks that leverage their capital into 10 times that in loans.
0: Now I I, I want to kind of pose the counterpoint and and uh, ask you to address it if I could because I've I have seen it brought up before where you know people will cite the Bank of North Dakota and the fact that you know it, it wrote out the two thousand seven two thousand eight crisis so uh, so tremendously and people will say well that wouldn't have been the case if it weren't for big oil companies that were in North Dakota essentially subsidizing everything that the bank and the state's economy uh, was doing. So can you talk about sort of the uh, separating the oil revenue, oil profits, fracking profits uh, that propped up North Dakota from the role that the bank played?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, the oil boom didn't really hit North Dakota until 2010. And they were already the only estate that escaped the credit crisis in the spring of 2009. And um, the the it the bank does not get oil revenues i mean it only gets deposits so it, it doesn't make any difference to the bank what kind of revenues the state is getting the bank is a separate entity that runs on ordinary banking principles and uh after 2014 when the wall street journal said that, that it was the most profitable bank in the i mean you know more profitable than j p morgan chase they had a huge. There was a huge oil bust. I mean, huge that that would have bankrupted most states. That they lost. I forget the the exact number, but you know, more than, oil dropped by more than half, and I guess other things, corn and soybeans, all their major prod, products dropped significantly. So, for normal states, I mean, that should have. If that was the reason that the Bank of North Dakota was so profitable, it should have disturbed their profits. But it didn't. Every single year they have record profits, uh, have had profits that were greater than the last. So they're up to being a $7 billion bank now, which is pretty big for a a state that size. They're like 150 at the state of California. So if we had been doing what they're doing, for a hundred years, we would have a 350 billion dollar bank, which is seven times what you need to be a too big to fail bank. So,
0: yeah, that's pretty interesting. Now, um, I want to get. I wanna, oh, and let me also say,
1: yeah. they did. They tended to. I mean, they were. Um, they the state was having budget problems after the after this oil collapse and and what they did was hit up the bank they borrowed from the bank or at least they were talking about that i know that's what they did in 2000 2001 where they had a that was the only time they had a budget crisis i guess except this one recently and what they did was that was because of the dot com collapse and what they did was they just issued an extra dividend from their own bank And they were back on track. They didn't have to save massive rainy day funds. They didn't have to borrow and put themselves into debt for years. They just, you know, got it from their banks. So it's good for many, many things. When they've had um, environmental problems like floods, they've had a couple of major, major floods. The, 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 The biggest flood next to the New Orleans flood was in North Dakota. I forget the exact date, but... Uh, late 1990s I think and the Bank of North Dakota was right there unlike FEMA you know which drags its feet and even then all you get is a loan you don't get real help the Bank of North Dakota was right there helping rebuild um, they they, um, they put a moratorium on mortgages so people didn't have to pay their mortgages for a while so anyway they they're there to serve the community and that's what they do and there's no They don't pay bonuses, fees, or commissions. They don't have high-paid CEOs. So there's no incentive to gamble, to speculate, to be greedy, to do things that will make personal profits. They're just civil servants getting paid to do a job, and their job is to do their best for the local economy. So that's what they do. If we're looking for more models, the, the German public banking system, the Sparkassen, uh, 50% of their retail banking are the Sparkassen local publicly owned banks, and they too are—they have no choice but to just be civil servants doing their job. And it's been a very profitable mo- model. And some say that's the reason the German economy is outshining every other economy in. Europe, because they have this very strong public banking system.
0: uh, Absolutely. So um, before we go to break, I just want to finish up this point on on North Dakota. And then after the break, we're going to go into some other topics. But um, one of the things that was really interesting to me, because I didn't know about the Bank of North Dakota until I read about it from some of your work, Ellen. And uh, one of the things that's really fascinating for me is that, uh, and because I've studied a little bit the history of some of the uh, fights over economic questions in the late 19th century, that in some ways the Bank of North Dakota established in 1919 is, is to a large degree the culmination of like decades of struggle uh, in the Midwest. This is, of course, the populist movement, uh, you know, uh, the the gold bugs versus the greenbacks and that kind of that fight going back to the Civil War period all the way through the end of the 19th Century and so when you get into the twentieth century and the Bank of North Dakota and in some ways you could see it as kind of a, a culmination of some of those struggles. So can you talk a little bit about the history and how the historical circumstances of North Dakota and the Midwest really led to the rise of this institution?
1: Yes, well, in 1919, North Dakota was suffering a. It's a, it's a farm community, and they were suffering a um, and a recession, and the farmers were losing their farms to the to the large out-of-state banks. And so they had a quite fiery political leader who um, – they formed a political party. They called it the Nonpartisan League because the, these, these, the people of North Dakota were – like, there's a movie on it. Uh, I've forgotten the name of it. <laughs> but anyway, there's a movie on it, it's like a regular Hollywood movie. And uh, they were Norwegian and uh, Swedish farmers that didn't want to have anything to do with any kind of socialist movement. You know, they were very—they uh, barely spoke English. Or, and but when they realized that the that the banks were actually taking advantage, that they were f- foreclosing on farms, not taking their grain when when it was perfectly good grain, like the granary. And the railroad and the banks were all one system. The Rockefeller, right. yep, yeah. You know. So th- they weren't taking the grain in order to get the farms. It looked like. So when the people realized that that, that there was a conspiracy, basically, to, or a, a cartel, or you know, to get there farms, then they they did band together and forms this they called it the nonpartisan league to show that it was neither left nor right nor socialist or anything. It was all about state sovereignty. It was all about keeping our money in the state for our purposes and not letting it go out of state to be used you know, to be used as leverage against us. And as you say, there was this very strong populist movement, not specifically in North Dakota, but all the way from the civil war until um until the 1890s and of course Lincoln issued his own greenback currency to fund the the north's part of the civil war and that was to avoid a huge debt that he would have had to incur to uh wall street and british specifically british bankers um of something like 20 Twenty-four to thirty-six percent, they were being that was being threatened, and that would have you know just locked the government into debt forever, which is what wars typically do. So to avoid that, he just issued his own currency, this this greenback currency, and not only did they win the war, but they funded a, a period of strong, an unusual period of development, including building the continental transcontinental railroad. That went from, you know, west coast to east coast to west coast. So what they did was they funded two two companies to build this railroad. It started at either end of the country and then built toward the center. And by the time they met in the center, 17 years later, um, they had actually they had actually already turned. I forgot my figures now. 40, I think a 40 percent profit. Anyway, it was hugely profitable, and it was made, generated, with money that was just printed, rather like the Chinese do it. Print the money first, and then the proceeds from whatever you build will pay back the loan. But then, of course, Lincoln was assassinated, the greenbacks were terminated, and then in the 1870s, um, silver was demonetized. Yes, Which, before that, silver and gold were considered specie, specie, you know, it was... um, these were good these were official money so when silver was demonetized that just left gold well gold was the money of the bankers and silver was the money of the people it was a lot more accessible yep. so that radically shrank the money supply and it caused a great depression another great depression and um, so there were populist movements all the way from the 1870s till the 18 late 1890s um, my original theme on Web of Debt was, that was what it was all about, really, was the whole populist movement, that um, the Wizard of Oz was written as a monetary allegory in 1899, yep. and they, it was modeled on the first ever March on Washington, which was um, in 1894, and it was a march to all the way from Ohio to the Capitol in order to... Um, to get the government to return to the greenback system. They're, they would, What they were pushing was called Coxie's Army, and what, what he was pushing was, um, the, or his proposal was to, I think it was $500 million that would go toward, of greenbacks, just printed money, that would go toward um, building new roads, and that was supposed to serve the farmers, because they needed the roads to get their products to market. And another five hundred million that would go to loans to to the state or the states um, in order to you know it would be like cheap credit for the states, which is they sh- they still should do that I mean here it is a hundred years later there one of the the woman who was supposedly the prototype for Dorothy and The Wizard of Oz was this fiery um, leader of the populist movement, and she did the speech and she said. Uh, Wall Street owns the country. You know, it's, I mean, it was exact. You could you could give that speech a hundred years later, and nothing has changed. They were yep. suffering from the same stuff, so it's about time that we actually finished what they started.
0: I think that's absolutely right, and I'm I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the the point about Wizard of Oz. I mean, if people don't know that Wizard of Oz is an allegory for the economic fights of the late uh, 19th century in the U.S., just consider the symbolic meaning of a yellow brick road. That's, of course, gold and the gold standard leading to the City of Green, the Emerald City, and on and on and on you can point to. Yeah, 100... and the,
1: the ruby si- slippers were originally silver slippers. That's so right, exactly. Here she had the yeah, so so that what the the um, populists were originally, they wanted to return to the Greenback system. Those are the Greenbackers. But since that failed, they were turned away at the Capitol steps. Uh, then then the populist movement switched to. Going back to silver, yes, monetizing silver, and
0: and it's so. a pretty and and for people who don't know it, I, I would highly recommend you read up on this period because it actually informs a lot of the issues that we still deal with today, as Ellen was uh, alluding to there, including things you know uh, things like very you know sectarian political divides which doomed the greenbacks, you know the greenback labor party versus the greenback party, and some of the internal uh, fights that went on there that then led to the sort of fetishization of silver by a lot of people, which famously leads to William Jennings Bryan and the cross of gold speech that the farmer of the Midwest should not be crucified on the banker's cross of gold and, and so forth. I mean, a lot of these conflicts really kind of spilled over into really every facet of political life in the United States in that period. And then into the early 20th century, a lot of these conflicts is the sort of the, the, the backdrop for why the federal reserve came about in the way that it did how the international uh, uh, banking interests and financial interests kind of pushed back against some of these movements it's a fascinating history
1: yeah no that's that's why I, when i first started writing web uh, web of debt my first introduction i said this 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 issue has been made far too complicated, and I'm going to do it in 60 pages. (laughs) I don't know why I thought 60. But, of course, I wound up writing 600 pages. But it was so interesting that it just one thing led to another. You know, you just open up one little window, and that would lead to another window, and another window, which would grow into another chapter like an amoeba. I figured 10 pages was enough for a chapter, so when I got up to 12 or 13... (laughs) I had to
0: start new well and it's something that's sometimes difficult for people today to wrap their heads around because we're not or at least most people listening uh, with the exception of a couple who I know uh, but most people who are listening are not involved in agricultural production they're not living in rural settings and uh, so sometimes it might be a little bit hard to wrap our heads around but if you put yourself in the position of a farmer in the Midwest in you know 1890 the 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 money supply means Meaning your ability to actually get credit to actually pay for the things that will that your family need to survive. This is a life and death question. And so when you know interests on Wall Street representing British and American banking uh, cartels, when they tell you, "Oh no, sorry, there's not going to be any money for you to borrow," well, that can lead to very significant social conflict, as it did.
1: Right. Yep. So the farmers particularly needed needed credit. I mean that's the way farmers live because you never know what kind of crop you're going to get, and you never know um, what the
0: what the weather conditions will be that year. You never know if you'll come over, under. You know, I mean the 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 life of a farmer is something that again is not so easy for most urban dwellers to wrap their heads around today. Yeah. So, uh, but 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 that's but that's a very interesting history. So why don't we take a quick break? Uh, uh, we'll come back from the break, and we will finish up on that subject and, and touch on a couple of others that I think are of paramount importance. I'm chatting with Ellen Brown. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. use on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Ellen Brown, We, you know, there's a, so many different kind of threads to this conversation that we could sort of pull on, but I want to try to stay focused, if we could, on on the movement that's building, because we've talked a little bit about the history uh, but I want to turn a little, if we could, towards the future, because I really think that that's critical now given all of the uh, political and economic developments in recent years. So, um... Could we talk a little bit about some of the Let's call them, uh, you know, uh, uh, turning points or significant developments in the movement for public banking, uh, recently. Uh, if I know there was, uh, th- there were some statements from Bernie Sanders, which given what happened in 2016 could be pretty significant. Of course, also from the, uh, you know, from the, I would say even more progressive left, uh, Ralph Nader and some of his things that he has said. So can you talk a little bit about some of these big personalities on the progressive end of the spectrum that have talked about if not outwardly endorse public banking and why this is important,
1: yeah, well, that's great. That um, I, I, it took a long time for people to even hear about the idea. You know, it's the nature of a movement that you or nature of an idea, I guess, that it just has to percolate for a while before before people recognize that it's a good idea and start action on it, but also, particularly. What ha- what has been a big push was the banking crisis of 2008, and then Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Partiers, you know, left and right, that the movements to change the system. And then then we've just had one banking fraud after another, or exposing, you know, one banking fraud after another. So people have gotten more and more turned off of Wall Street. Most recently, we had that wells fargo scandal where they had fabricated two million accounts and um in Calif- in los angeles where i live for example there's a young people's movement i love the young people they're so motivated i mean they're so moral like they really honestly want to do the right thing like old people say well that's the way it is <laughs> what can you- i mean my generation you know they say well that's what what can you do that's the way it is so anyway these motivated young people the berniecrats that that lost but there's still a group and they're still motivated they want the city to um divest from wells fargo pull all the cities the city you know the city government's money out of wells fargo but then the problem is where do you put it there's nobody wants it nowadays that the small banks really don't want government deposits because they have to they have to come up with huge amounts of collateral for it i mean there are just so many rules about it that the, it's not really useful for them. They don't really need deposits like they used to because they can borrow on the repo market. Well, it's a complicated system, but anyway, there's there's no place else to put them unless you set up your own publicly owned banks. So it was sort of a natural marriage. We had a we had a, an, an event here a couple of months ago, which that's what it was all about: public banking. And there are a number of other cities that are talking about divesting, and they they have the same problem. Um, as you mentioned, Ralph Nader, that was great. He came out with this really strong article for public banking. And um, I suppose maybe that was because, well, I'm not sure what triggered that, but he did invite me to speak at his conference last fall, which was lovely. And Bernie Sanders was asked by um, Gwen Hallsmith at an event in Vermont if he supported public banking, and he said, yes, he did. So that was great. I actually... Somebody paid for me to have to be at the dinner table with uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, several weeks ago, and uh, so you know I broached the whole subject to her and gave her a book and stuff. All these things take time, but uh, we do have interesting developments. That when we first started the Public Banking Institute in 2011, like within a year, we had, um, I think already then we. Well, now, as of now we have 23 states that have brought bills of one sort or another for publicly owned banks. But it happened right away within the first year or two. And uh California came out with this strong bill that uh, we got it was for a feasibility study and we got both houses of the both houses of the legislature passed it. And then Jerry Brown the governor wouldn't sign it. He said it was for a feasibility study and he said, "Well, we don't we, or it was for a committee, a blue robin committee, said we don't need another committee, it's just more money, that we can do this in-house, we've already got a banking committee. But, of course, they never did it. So now we're at the stage where we need new impetus, or, you know, we've got to build the, the support. The under, the the movement has to bubble up from the bottom. They have to be pushed by somebody, because legislators are just, you know, inherently anti-change, because <clears throat> it jeopardizes their job. I mean, they're very risk-conscious and they need somebody, they need a whole bunch of constituents to, to push them into, into doing something. But now one thing that is really motivating legislators, we've got a number of legislators here in California who are interested in a publicly owned bank because of this whole um, legalized marijuana, cannabis, um, in January of in California, that the, there will be all these dispensaries that will be legally selling marijuana for recreational purposes as well as health. So that is calculated to be something like, I think it would be a billion dollars in taxes annually. It's that's the calculation. So of course they want the billion dollars in taxes, and so they want some way. That they can get that money, which means it has to be reported, which means it's going to have to go into a bank somewhere, but banks can't take the money, because, or they won't. Very few banks will take this money because it's illegal at the federal level, and they're afraid they're going to lose their banking privileges. But a state could be in a stronger position to get around that in their, in their publicly owned banks. So, and just,
0: it just so, occurred to me, Ellen, and I, I want to follow up on it. What about the conflict that California has with Donald Trump right now? Might that be an additional push in this direction where California says, you know what, because of the president and all these other things and the bill about sanctuary cities and making California a sanctuary state, maybe this is yet another push that the state needs to go its own way.
1: Yeah, I agree. There's just a huge amount of rebellion all across the country. I mean, like Texas is. T- there's you know secession movements, and and there. Are, I think there are 13 states that ha- do have that have bills on to issue their own currency. They're talking about a gold-backed currency, and I guess they figure they can do that because in the Constitution it says no state shall make anything but silver or gold or use it for, in the payment of debts, which of course no absolutely nobody does. But that—that's their constitutional grounding. But anyway, you have all sorts of movements in, in Northern California. We have a big movement to actually break away from the country and be our own, be our own country, which probably California should be. It's the sixth largest economy in the world. I mean, it's—it should at least have its own bank. If North Dakota can have its own bank, there's no reason California couldn't. So I agree. There's a, a different mentality where people are just. Sort of generally in rebellion and starting to think, well, you know, what's another way we could tackle this instead of just doing things the same old way that we've always done them?
0: And what about what we've what we've been hearing uh, about some of the you know rumblings and discussions in New Mexico? I know that there was an interesting development in Santa Fe not too long ago. I, I think I read about it on your website, but I don't remember where I read about it. But what's going on in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and why is it important, and why should people pay attention?
1: Well, Santa Fe is not a huge city. It's a city, and they've got a bill for a. Um for a city owned bank and that they've um they had a they have a commission that's now been um authorized to proceed basically with a feasibility to study to see to see whether they sh- you know, should go ahead and charter a bank. So it'll take time but they're 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 moving right along in this process and uh, Oakland is moving along. They've got been approved by their city council, I think also for a for a feasibility study type thing, we've had a number of feasibility studies, and they've shown that that the bank would be profitable and is a good idea. But of course, it's still hard to get legislators to move move on them. Um, yep. Um, I'm wondering. North, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go, ahead. No, go
0: right ahead. Well, Ellen.
1: Oh, I was just going to say New Jersey. I already said about New Jersey. That's probably our most the most likely next publicly owned bank will be the new jersey bank although california could actually we've got a very strong movement here going i'm not you know i can't really talk about it because legislators don't want to be they don't want to be known what they're what they're supporting ahead of time because they'll get all kinds of pushback they want to get all their ducks in a row but anyway there's yeah they need their they need their their lobbyist
0: cash as quick as possible sure um you know uh it's interesting that you said that about New Jersey. I wonder, is that because of online gambling profit?
1: No, I think well, of course they're very people are generally unhappy with uh chris Christie, and there's so you know the Democrats are anyway um but I think the the reason that uh Bill Murphy picked up on this was just that he is was a banker and because I've had that experience before, where we told the two legislators who were previously bankers, and they, and their eyes just light up. It's like they, it's like a no-brainer. Of course, that we, that's what we should do. Have our own bank. We'll save huge amount of money. We can, we can direct it where we want. We can save all those fees that are going off to Wall Street. We don't have to worry about credit default swaps and all the things that we can get. Mm-hmm. Um, taken.
0: Now, uh, one question that I have about the movement, the public banking movement, and uh, I, I think probably this is going to be something that a lot of people are wondering about. What's the political character of the movement? I know that uh, you and, 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 and others have tried to, you know, be as sort of uh, big tent as possible, uh, you know, embracing many different perspectives and so forth, so long as there is kind of agreement around this general principle. But I'm wondering, I mean, are you getting or are, are, are you seeing an influence? of uh, people who describe themselves as socialists or uh, communists or anarchists, or is it mostly people who consider themselves just progressive Democrats? And secondly, you mentioned, uh, you know, people who are skeptical of the banking system on the right. And so while certainly that's true, my sort of hesitation is rooted in my own experience with people like that, where while they're able to correctly diagnose and identify a problem, the kind of solutions they put forward are exactly the the wrong solutions, things like full privatization and uh, return to the gold standard and these kinds of things which are not only counterproductive, they're sort of deeply reactionary. So can you talk a little bit, at least from my perspective, so can you talk a little bit about the political character of the movement for public banking and how that uh, informs or impacts the course of the movement?
1: right well it honestly is supported by both sides i mean we have very strong advocates on both sides and i'm not saying that just to be polite so that i don't you know injure anyone's predilections or whatever they they're really for different reasons they they we have strong, i mean we have had people on that board the pbi board who are who are republicans and democrats and greens and you know they it's just all across the board and interestingly, it was the Republicans who picked up on this whole idea faster than I mean I've I've heard it said that it was strange that Democrats didn't seem to be very interested in monetary reform. It's the it's the Republicans who were always into monetary reform. As as you say, it was more for different reasons. I mean, like they want to end the Fed, whereas right. exactly. um, you would think people on the left would be more inclined to. Um, Socialize the Fed- you know, own the Fed basically yeah,
0: nationalize it exactly
1: nationalize the Fed yeah, so um, so there are different motives involved, but anyway, we've got plenty of Republicans and plenty of people on the right and and you know people have sort of cross lined lately i i mean i'm I'm not even sure where I am myself, <laughs> I'm sort of some party that doesn't exist yet, I think I'm a populist, um anyway. I mean, there's a lot of disillusionment with the conventional parties.
0: So. Oh, of course. But I, that's part of the reason why, um, you know, many organ, many socialist organizations are seeing uh, an explosion in membership. You're seeing certainly groups like DSA, Democratic Socialists of America and others that have spun off of the Bernie campaign or, or, or at least have become a, a landing point for people coming out of the Bernie campaign. So there's certainly been a lot of, uh, you know, ground moving in terms of grassroots politics. And so it's for that reason. And that I'm wondering, you know, to what extent uh, the public banking movement has been impacted by that.
1: Yeah. Well, no, that's definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. There, there's definitely that. I mean, we, the the uh, Bernie Sanders brigade is is looking for a cause here and they've taken up on public banking, which is a natural fit. But it actually is. You know, farmers are Republicans. My mother's family are farmers, and my dad's family are from Detroit, auto worker types, and so I grew up with both leanings. Um, farmers want to keep their money at home, you know, like the North Dakotans. They want state sovereignty. They're they're into so so you can see it from both sides, and you can see why it's why it's attractive to both sides. Plus, it's just a money saver. I mean, it really is a no-brainer once you understand how banking works and you realize, why are we giving that away to Wall Street? We could do that ourselves. We, The state of California is huge. There's no reason we can't be running our own bank. Well,
0: and, and, and also, I think, and I guess to your point, Ellen, that uh, – I mean, the reality is that Wall Street knows no political party. Wall Street owns both, or, oh, good or, you point. Know, or rather, yeah. or rather, Wall Street has, uh, let's say, you know, slightly, slightly different factions representing the political parties. But at the larger level, uh, really, kind of controls both and has a consensus within the government. So it, it only stands to reason then that any movement that challenges Wall Street would also be made up of those who, uh, to various, you know, to varying degrees, are left out of that consensus, as it were.
1: Yeah, agreed. So,
0: yeah, so anyway, all right, well, um, in wrapping up this conversation, I want to give you a chance to just kind of, I mean, I don't mean to make it sound like you're like a carnival barker or anything, but like to make a pitch, Uh, To people who don't know much about this issue, who are just hearing about it for the first time, uh, why this is something that they could really get active on and um, especially why – and this is, I think, one of the really exciting things about public banking movement is that – at a time when, as you said, there's so much anger, seething anger, and in some cases disillusionment, Uh, I think that uh, a movement for public banking is something very tangible, very real, and in some sense, very attainable. So can you talk a little bit about why this movement is is, is so um, ready for people to challenge their energy, or sorry, to channel their energy into?
1: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's something that we can do at our local level you can approach your local legislators they all are broke unlike the state or the the national government which can just keep going into debt and keep raising their debt ceiling state and local governments are required to balance their books and where are they going to get that extra money if they can save on bank fees or um, you know get cheaper loans that's all to the good so if they get it how having their own bank will will solve all that they're they're open to it they want to do it. Yeah.
0: And I I think and I think that the other thing uh, and and you, I think, should be credited for being one of the people that was really out in front on the issue is uh, that a public bank is almost in some senses an insurance policy against uh, being subject to the whims of finance capital. I mean, we saw uh, what finance capital can do when they want to in a place like Greece. We saw similarly uh, a couple of years ago. I know you wrote about this in Cyprus. The so called bail in, that is to say, basically, uh, forcing, forcing, uh, depositors and savings holders essentially at gunpoint to fund a government. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of weapons that these banks have to exact their, you know, and extract their pound of flesh. And I think that a public banking option is something that in some ways sort of delegitimizes or takes away some of that leverage that these private banks have.
1: Right. Agreed. And it seems to me the reason that Wall Street, that politicians are so corruptible. I mean, it's always a disappointment. We, we think we've elected somebody who's speaking for us, and they always fall into this. They're captured by big money. And why is that? Well, they don't have their own money. They don't have any choice but to spend all their time going out there trying to solicit money. And as soon as they do anything that we cross the banks, they get the you know the evil eye like don't try it or you're going to lose your job so if they had their own money if they had their own source of funding they could actually be honest i mean i think people go into politics most people actually wanting to help their their local constituents but they wind up being forced into um you know succumbing to big money so yeah i think that that's the crux of the problem actually my first 10 books were on health and the politics of health and i switched over to writing on banking because i realized that the the the, far, the reason the pharmaceutical industry was so strong and that you really couldn't get your natural remedies legitimized was because they were they were a cartel with the banking system and that the real problem is the that banks have the power to create money, and that's where they get their power across the boards. So if we want to – we can't really fight the banks. What we can do is compete with the banks, set up an, a better mousetrap that everyone will gravitate toward.
0: Indeed. Uh, okay, can you just tell us really quickly what you envision are uh, the – uh short and or medium and or long-term goals of this movement i mean what are are people who may be wanting to get involved in it now what what should they what should they think uh the movement is working towards in the short term and then perhaps uh you could articulate the vision of the public banking movement for the long term
1: mm-hmm. well in the short term we are hoping to get i think we've set ourselves a goal of 6 public banks by 2020 that's our that's our board goal um so if you had i mean even one if new jersey does it and it and it's so obvious that it's a big money saver then everybody else will follow like lemmings but what i would envision ultimately would be that every state should have its own state-owned bank they should have a network of currency exchange just like the big wall streets do and wall street banks um and in fact, it actually seems to me that all the banking should be a public utility. I don't mean to sound socialist, but 50% of, um, 50% somewhere I saw, <laughs> oh, it was uh, uh, Jamie Galbraith, I said I think, said that 50 per- governments are all 50% private and 50% or economies are all 50% private and 50% public. It's just a question of what you put in the public sector. I mean, right now, our military is practically, it's our biggest public socialist engine is the military, and everybody supports it because their jobs are, are linked to it. So banking is something that should be a public utility. It's a thing that flows. Money is a flow. It's an ebb and flow, like water, like like electricity, all those things that we share, highways, you know, that, that are networks that connect us should be public utilities so just as highways are public so our banking should be public
0: indeed I, I i couldn't agree more and in fact uh uh speaking and sounding like a socialist is very much welcomed on this show ellen so thank you <laughs> okay. thank you for that well
1: i don't you know I don't, we, like <laughs> no, i say we, we're all across the board and i don't mean to <laughs> no, i'll get that's all okay. kinds of black i won't, I won't tell i won't tell your republican
0: friends, friends you said that i won't tell i promise <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, well, we're we're pretty much out of time. I just want to give you a chance. Tell people where they should go to uh, read up more on public banking, on the movement, on the Public Banking Institute, uh, find your books and or other materials you think are relevant. Where should people go online to follow all of this?
1: Okay. My website is ellenbrown.com and the Public Banking Institute website is publicbankinginstitute.org. It's it's in the process of being upgraded, but hopefully you'll be able to find, um, you know, models for legislation, where to go, if you want to find a group, how to contact us. So you can be in our coordinators' calls, et cetera. And um, my, my website has over 300 articles on it that I've written on the subject. And my two books on the subject are Web of Debt and The Public Bank Solution, and they're available, most easily available on Amazon.
0: Thank you so much. And Ellen, I want to thank you for coming on the show and thank you for all of the good work that you're doing. It's really uh, important and very appreciated because this is one of the areas that really has to be addressed if we're going to challenge the system uh, in total. So Ellen, thank you for the work you've been doing and all of those who have been working with you and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully check in with you soon and uh, check in on your progress. Okay, thank you, Eric. Thanks, good Ellen. Thank you. you, listeners, as always. And I will chat with you again next week.